your prayers with regard to my kidney stones and other issues. And uh, so um, I'm sure Brother Bill has given you great lessons while I was gone. <clears throat> what we'd like to do is finish up on Amos today. Uh, if you recall, a long time ago we were in the book of Amos and we were studying how God was dealing with his people. And um, we got worked our way through um, the better part of the book. And we were about um, going through the five visions at the end of Amos. And uh, we had already looked at three of those visions, and there's two more to go. And so that's where we find ourselves today. These uh, first three visions, if you recall, one was of locusts and one was of fire and one was of the plumb line. And um, what we saw in those first three, we saw what God said he was going to do and what God actually will do. So when Amos saw the vision of the locusts, he, he pleaded to God for his people. And he said to him, um, you know, if you bring the locusts in, that will destroy the crops for everybody, and everybody will suffer, and everybody will perish. And God said he would not do that. He said he was going to, but he decided he wouldn't do that. And then he had the vision of the fire. And again, Amos interceded on behalf of the people and said, Lord, this will destroy everyone, not just the evil ones. And so pleaded on their behalf, and God again says, okay, I will not do that. <clears throat> and um, then the third vision was that of the plumb line. Again, we talked about how this was used to measure how straight things were. <clears throat> and... Um, Amos did not protest against that vision. So these visions, these first three visions, um, show that God will not destroy Israel totally, the righteous along with the unrighteous, but that he will measure by his own standards. He will use that plumb line to measure, use that as the standard for um, how he will deal with his people. So on the surface, this seems to be an improvement. No locusts, no fire. God says, this is the standard by which I will use. Amos felt that uh, it must have been better because, again, he didn't protest against it like he did the other two. And after all, what objections could Amos have because God is testing his own people? In such testing, wouldn't the judge of the entire universe do what was right? Makes sense. Um, so Amos did not question or challenge that vision. But the question can be asked, using this plumb line, using God's standard to measure the people, was it an improvement over the other two? What do you think? Do you see it as an improvement over the first two visions of total destruction? 
Any thoughts on that? It certainly would be an improvement if your life measured up to God's standard. But uh, it's not the case. It's not really an improvement at all because can we measure up to God's standards? No. No. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The ones whose life is not (coughs) upright and true will be condemned by God's standard and judgment will come nevertheless. Just as the visions in chapter 8 and 9, which we're about to look at, uh, portray. So turn to Amos uh, chapter 8, if you're not already there. And we'll look at the last two visions found in these chapters, 8 and 9. Let me start off by reading uh, the first two verses here. Thus the Lord God showed me, Behold, a basket of, some of you have summer fruit, some of you have ripe fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And so I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, The end has come upon my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. Each year at harvest time, the people of Israel kept a feast or festival called the Festival of Booths, at which time a token offering of the bounty of the, of the crops were brought in as, a, as an offering uh, to God. And this was a very joyful uh, time, a, a joyful feast. Families gathered together. And they celebrated the blessings of the harvest and the pros- promise of a bright future through the coming winter because they had a good harvest. Not you can see rel- uh, connections to our Thanksgiving in, in this um, festival of booths. Again, some of you have ripe fruit or summer fruit. Um, What could be more tasty than that? Um, My wife and I in October went out to the orchard and she loaded up apples and I carried the apples to the car and we got home and then I carried the apples to the kitchen and then she took over. So she ended up doing about 20 quarts of applesauce. Great flavor, no sugar added, all that good stuff. And I know that some of you have made pies, fruit pies, and frozen them already for the winter. Yet in these verses, chapter 8, 1 through 2, God says that the basket of fruit is the nation of Israel and that they are indeed ripe, but they are ripe for judgment. So Ken's going to pass out... uh, some outlines here, and you might, if you're interested in taking any notes.
Remember, <clears throat> the priest Amaziah and uh, J- the king Jeroboam were not too pleased to have Amos in their, in their area preaching um, judgment on their people. And after hearing about this judgment that these people, that uh, Amos was saying that um, this basket represents Israel and it's ripe for judgment, I don't imagine these two guys were very happy with what Amos had to say. <clears throat> and they might have come to Amos and pleaded for justice. This is not fair. We don't know that they did, but if they did, Amos probably would simply bring out the old plumb line and say, okay, let's measure up. Why isn't it fair? This is God's standards. Why are you at, you know, upset? Do you measure up? What about your treatment of the poor? Do you still want justice? What about your business practices, your cheating scales? Do you still want justice? What about your unfairness found in your court system? Do you still want justice? In each of these areas that you're found wanting, like the ripe fruit, um, they're ready for judgment. Let's take a look at verses 4 through 7. Hear this, you who swallow up the needy and make the poor of the land fail, saying, when will the new moon be passed that we may sell sell grain and the Sabbath that we may trade wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel large, falsifying the scales by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, even all the the bad wheat, even sell the bad wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their works. Think about that last line. Surely I will never forget any of their deeds or works. That's a chilling thought for any nation. Just uh, pause a moment and plug in the word America instead of Israel. I don't know about you, but it kind of sends a chill up my spine thinking about that. He will never forget any of their works or deeds. Israel's sins were great. So are ours. Our nation has been racked with big farm and big tech scandals, censorship, ignoring laws, only enforcing laws that you want. There's a two-tier judicial system, planned destruction of small businesses at every turn. Verse 5 seems to describe our business practices here. We are guilty of making the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger and cheating the <coughs> with dishonest scales. 
These practices are classic examples of inflationary economy, making what you're buying smaller. You used to be able to get 16 ounces of, of lunch meat. Now you're paying 12 ounces for the same price as the 16. So um, we see that happening in our economy here today, where our money is worth less and we're getting less for it. We've recently seen a spike in inflation rate due to uh, part with the energy costs and the government uh, deficit spending. Yet we still buy clothes made with poor material and low craftsmanship, cars that cost more with questionable quality, city services that cost more and yet provide less. The whole question of health care and related costs are even before us. The question is, whom does it hurt? It usually hurts the poor, the old, the sick, those who are on fixed incomes. So does America also trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land? You can see a lot of similarities between what was happening in Israel and what's happening here. So the first part of chapter, or verse 5, is uh, very telling. It says, uh, when all the new moons be passed, that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath, that we may trade wheat. It describes how businessmen could not wait until the feasts and the Sabbath days were over so they could start selling again. I wonder if they entered into any kind of meaningful worship on the Sabbath day or were they too anxious to get their uh, pockets filled with money in the coming week. But here we have them beat. We have learned that you do not have to wait until the feasts and the Sabbaths are over. We use every day to do business, Sundays and holidays included. Legislation in our state capital has removed the restriction on Sunday sales of alcohol. It's not really amazing that the world can't wait until noon to buy their booze on Sunday. It's surprising that they have no respect for the birth of our Christ and our Lord. What do you suppose God thinks of this? If Christ declared the temple cleared the temple because it had become a place of business? Do you think God will remember we have violated the commandments to keep the Sabbath holy and rest from our labors? Remember what God said in verse 5, I will never forget anything they have done, their works or their deeds. Quite often God makes us have short memories. You and I forget things, especially the wrong things that we do. In some ways, that's good because it would be very difficult for us to live uh, with a lot of uh, recognition of, of the faults that we, we carry with us, our shortcomings. We have to forget some of the past to get on with life, but God does not forget. God remembers everything. 
And someday we must answer for the wrongs that we've done. At the end of the chapter, God's judgment on the kingdom of Israel is spelled out again. It's spelled out in three parts. One, a general description of death, destruction, and and mourning throughout the land, much like the description of the day of the Lord in chapter 5 that we looked at. Two, a subsequent time of famine as far as (coughs) hearing the word of God is concerned. And three, a prediction of the death of even the young men and women. So let's read through that. And you can pick those things up, starting with, um, starting with uh, verse 8. Shall the land not tremble for this, and everyone mourn who dwells in it? And of all... We- <coughs> All of it shall swell like the river, heave and uh, subside like the river of Egypt. And it shall come to pass that day, said the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I'll darken the earth in broad daylight. And I'll turn your feasts into mourning, and all your songs into lamentations. I'll bring sackcloth on every waist, and baldness on every head. And I will make it like mourning for, for an only son and end like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the word of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro seeking the word of the Lord shall not find it. In that day, the fair virgins and the strong young men shall faint from thirst. Those who wear, swear by the sin of Samaria, who say, as, you, as your God lives, O Dan, and as way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. So like I said, there was three parts to this. There was a general destruction of death, mourning. There will be an absence of the word of God. Uh, There will be no preaching or revealing of his will for a period of time. And then the young men and women will perish as well. All part of God's judgment because they did not measure up to the standards. I'm going to look a little bit at the second thing uh, that is described here, the subsequent time of famine as far as hearing of God's word. We know uh, from history that this actually happened in Israel. The prophecy was made and it was carried out. We know that for a period of about 400 years, uh, God was silent in the land of Israel before the coming of of Jesus Christ. In those centuries, no prophets appeared. The word of God ceased. And it was a terrible time, as as we read, the people were going to and fro seeking uh, the word of God and, and not finding it. 
However, we do not find ourselves in that state today. While we have no new revelation, the revelation that we do have, this Holy Scriptures given by God, uh, is all that our church needs until the return of Christ from heaven once again. The truth today is widely proclaimed in our country and throughout the entire world. We don't have this drought of God's word. The problem we face today is not the famine of God's word, but that people do not value the great gift from God. Today, almost anywhere in the world, night or day, you can turn on your radio and hear the gospel being preached. In America, you can go to almost any village or small town in the country and find a group of believers who regularly meet together to worship God. We have Christian books and Christian schools and Christian films. And we have Christian seminars that we can attend. The problem certainly isn't the lack of these things. It is the attitude of millions who simply have no time for God's holy word. We're living in an age of God's grace. So the question is, are we studying his great gift to us? Let me read a quote from J.I. Packard. Let us then take our Bibles afresh and resolve by God's grace henceforth to make full use of them. Let us read them with reverence and humility, seeking the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Let us meditate on them till our sight is clear and our souls are fed. Let us live in obedience to God's will as we find it revealed to us in Scripture. And the Bible will prove itself both a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So it's not that we don't have his word. It's that we choose to have an attitude of uh, ambivalence, uh, apathy. And this nation will not, uh, will not be healed until we turn once again to God's word and ask for repentance. So that was the vision of the ripe fruit and what it meant to uh, Israel. The last, <coughs> the last vision um, occurs in chapter 9. Um, and maybe it's the most likely, the most unsettling vision of all. It's a vision of the Lord standing by an altar, speaking words of judgment. Let's look at um, chapter 9. I'll read verses 1 through 10. I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and he said, Strike the doorposts, and the thresholds may shake, and break them on the heads of them all. I will slay the last of them with a sword. He who flees from them shall not get away. And he who escapes from them shall not be delivered. 
Though they dig into hell, from there my hand shall take them. Though they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. And though they hide themselves on top of Carmel, from there I will search and take them. Though they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, from there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. They, they go into captivity before the enemies, and there I will command the sword, and it shall slay them. I will set my eyes on them for harm and not for good. The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell there mourn, and all of it shall swell like the river and subside like the river of Egypt. Egypt. He who builds his layers in the sky, and he has found his strata in the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. Are you not like the people of Ethiopia to me, O children of Israel, says the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, the Philistines from Captor, and the Syrians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, says the Lord. For surely I will command, and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations, as grain is sifted in a sieve. Yet not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground, and all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say the calamity shall not overtake nor confront us. God describes himself as the sovereign Lord who builds up and who tears down. He says that the Israelites are to be judged as the pagan nations. We saw how happy they were when when Amos started declaring judgment on the pagans around them. He's saying, God is saying, I'm going to judge you just like I judged them. They are to be judged utterly, and no one will, be, will escape. Everyone will be uh, measured by God's standard, and nobody will escape. No matter where they run or try to hide, their hand of God will take them. All will be judged, and all will die at the hands of the enemy, while others will be taken into captivity. And yet we read in these verses that God will preserve a remnant. He will preserve a group of people, still calling them his own. And at the end of this chapter, we'll see uh, what he will do with those people. While we contemplate the words written, the words of God's judgment, we might uh, neglect the image of God at the altar. What is the point of the altar in the Old Testament um, worship? Why was that built? For me? Sacrifice for sin. A place uh, where sin could be dealt with. A place where the sinner 
could be reconciled to God um, uh, if he had a true heart of repentance. It was a place where sacrifices were made on behalf of the sinful people. It's a place of mercy. It was a place of an expression of God's love. Here's uh, Here's a way for you to have your sins removed. Here's a way to be reconciled to the holy God. But on this day of judgment, the altar becomes a place where Christ will even judge the church. On that day, grace will have ended. The Lord of grace becomes the judge of those who rejected his salvation. So let's see what he's going to do with this remnant. And again, I've made mention that uh, uh, this is an interesting section of, um, of Scripture. And many men have different ideas about this. So let's take a look at uh, verses 11 through 15. On that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as the days of old, that they may possess (coughs) the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows seed. The mountain shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. And they shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in the land and no longer shall they be pulled up. For the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. God's judgment has been a major theme in this book. Uh, But we see here the last part of the book uh, in a different way. Uh, It refers not to the coming day of judgment, but it refers to the coming day of God's blessing. It uh, kind of describes a golden age or a golden uh, period of prosperity. Dreams of a golden age are often intrigued by philosophers. They would write about these things. Um, Statesmen and poets and people in general would dream about a perfect society, a perfect life. Plato wrote about the golden age in his Republic. Roman poet Virgil gave birth to the golden age in his fourth uh, eulogy. Henry David Thoreau, if you remember reading anything about him, he tried to set up a perfect community, as did uh, Leo Tolstoy. They not only wrote about it, but they tried to build one. The communists 
in our century speak of a utopia, a classless society where everybody's equal and, and everything's held in common. The problem with each of these visions is that men and women seem unable to achieve it. They dream of what a golden age should be. They draft plans to achieve it, but they always fall short. History teaches that such plans are inevitably followed by disillusionment. In fact, the lessons of history probably uh, teach us that this age um, will only be established not by man, but by God. He's the only one who can bring about this golden age that we read about here. And of course, that's exactly what uh, Scripture tells us, that only God can bring this about. And I mentioned before that many authors and commentators see this uh, book having little hope uh, in, the, uh, in its writings. But hopefully we see here, particularly at the end, that that's not necessarily the case. God will preserve remnant. God will bring them back into the land. God will bless them. As we have learned earlier that uh, when a warning of judgment is sounded, we know for sure it will come. And you can be certain of that. And we've seen that warning through these visions through the book of Amos. And we know that God's judgment did come and God did deal with his people and they went into captivity. But beyond judgment will be a day of blessing and a time of restoration. Security will be established and great material and physical blessings will be coming into the land. Let me just stop here for a second and, and make mention that, again, these passages can be controversial, and, and particularly with regard to their meetings as they apply to the last days. Many godly men disagree on the interpretation of this prophecy. Some would argue that these verses should be taken literally and they should be looked at at face value. What you see is what you get. You know. While others would argue that what we read here must be understood in light of spiritual truths and not actual physical elements. The more I studied through these verses, the more questions I came up with rather than answers. So needless to say, I feel unqualified to take a dogmatic position as to which direction we should go with this. So it would be hard for me to teach something that I am still wrestling with myself. But I do believe there are some things that we can learn from this passage that we can apply. One of the lessons that we see taught in this last section is that God uses Israel to teach us that obedience is followed by blessing. Disobedience is followed by judgment. I believe this can be applied to Israel as well as to individuals, to nations, and the church.
Will our nation seek God and walk in his ways? If so, God will bless us. If not, he will judge us. Will those who are Christians humble themselves and pray and see God's face and turn from their wicked ways? If so, I believe God will bless them and prosper the church. If not, there will be punishment. A holy God demands holiness in those who follow him. So let me close in making um, some broad um, lessons that we can draw from the entire book here, just in general. Um, Ken, can you pass these out? This is just a summary of some of the lessons that I jotted down, and maybe you would have others, but uh, this is kind of how I would close the study of Amos. There's lessons in here concerning God and who he is, his omnipresence, his omnipotence, um, his omniscience. There's lessons in here concerning Israel. how they uh, failed and and brought judgment upon themselves. And then there's some miscellaneous lessons that I listed here. Privilege (coughs) implies responsibility. God's people enjoys special privileges. Therefore, we are given... uh, special responsibilities to carry those things out. Failure to recognize those responsibilities results in in punishment, judgment. So, uh, any comments or anything on the book of Amos or anything that we've covered? Salt all your questions in. I I find the minor prophets interesting. So I've enjoyed going back through Amos again. Well, if not, uh, we have about three minutes before the end of class. Uh, Ken, would you close us in a word of prayer?
Amen.